Well, I'm excited to step into the series on Ephesians. If you are new to church, uh, this community this morning, then we started last week. Pastor Raul preached from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 1 to verse 14. And today I'm going to pick up from verse uh, 15 through chapter 2, verse 10. Now, I'm not going to read all that text this morning because that's a lot to cover. But our small groups that are studying N.T. Wright's Guide to Ephesians is going to use that chunk this week. Chapters 2 and 3 are um, uh, what the text is this morning. And so I'm excited to step into this. In fact, I want to piggyback on some things that Pastor Raul started us out with last week. Because I think they're really important for us to really consider what Paul is talking about in the text that we're going to get to in a moment. So I want you to hear again Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. I'll be reading it from the NRSV translation. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, if you were with us last week, then you heard that, that uh, Pastor Raul mentioned that this maybe was a circular letter. In other words, it was passed around to churches in the ancient world. And that, in fact, Paul might have intended it to be that way. And, and he might not have initially addressed it only to the Ephesians. We have manuscripts that have a, uh, to a Ephesus, and then we have also manuscripts that don't have that. And we can use that as a way for us to enter into the text in a new way. Because what if this letter was intended for every church to read it and read themselves into it, as Pastor Raul said, so that we here today to the saints who are in Calvary community. What a beautiful opening for us. In fact, that's an amazing opening if you really think about it. How many times do you get that kind of greeting in your life? You just got called saints. Did you hear that? You guys don't seem too excited about that. <laughs> you need some more coffee or what? Come on, people. You were just identified as saints, okay? Oh, but that's not all because if you were listening last week, then you got to verse 4 and Pastor Raul told us that we, um, we were chosen. Chosen for what? Chosen to be holy and blameless. So, in a matter of four verses, the opening of this letter, Paul says to the ancient us, the contemporary us, he says, you are saints, and oh, by the way, you're chosen to be holy and blameless. To which I want to ask you a question. Do you think he's being serious? Or do you think he's just being overly kind? Because he's just called us saints, chosen to be holy and blameless. This seems like a lot. Maybe he is just being nice. We, we do that sometimes when we first meet somebody, right, that we don't really know. And I don't know if you noticed, but in verse 15, it kind of suggests that Paul doesn't exactly know everybody at this church or the churches that he's sending this letter to. I've heard about your faith, he says. He doesn't say, I know your faith. I've heard about your faith. And so it seems as if he's writing to a community or communities where he doesn't know everyone. 
and can't say without a shadow of a doubt that I know exactly who you are. And yet he addresses it all to the saints. And we know for sure that Paul had no ability, no way of knowing who all the people, millions of people that have read this letter through the ages. And every time the book of Ephesians is opened up and read, we hear to the saints. You are chosen to be holy and blameless. And if you were paying attention at all last week, there are no exemptions, are there? So is he just being overly kind? Maybe wanting to start out on a good note, right? We do that with people if we don't know them very well. We want, we want to start out with the best foot forward, don't we? Speaking of a good note, Sometimes when we have to be bearers of bad news, we start out with good news first, right? We had a young man over, that was seated down here in first service that yelled out, that's called a compliment sandwich. Now, I only heard, <laughs> it kind of caught me off guard. Uh, I only heard sandwich. It's a sandwich. It's a, I, I had to pause it like I didn't get it. So I talked to him afterwards and I was like, compliment sandwich. That's where you, you bring the good news first and then you give the bad news, and then you end with good news. <laughs> it's, we do this all the time, apparently, that we have a word for it, compliment sandwich. So there you go. I like it. Um, so, is Paul just being overly kind? Or last week we were given the good news, and guess what? The middle part of the sandwich is coming up today, and it's not going to be good news. Difficult news. Hard news. We sometimes read difficult things in Scripture, don't we? But surprise, you had a little bit of palpitation in your heart, like, oh man, here we go. Good news. Ephesians starts with good news, and Ephesians keeps just giving good news. Good news upon good news. It's amazing. So I want us to, before I read the full text that I want to preach from, uh, I'll be preaching from verses 15 uh, through the end of chapter 1. I just want to connect two things to where we've already been. So I want you to look at verse 15 if you have your Bible. And just hear what Paul says. Remember, he's addressed this to the saints. We're chosen to be holy and blameless. And then he says this in verse 15. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... So here we have a letter that's addressed to saints, a letter that says, I have heard of your love for other saints, saints upon saints. But we're not done because then we go down to verse 18, picking it up, kind of this thought halfway through. Don't worry, we'll come back to it. So that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope for which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? among the saints. Saints, loving saints, saints inheriting alongside other saints. This is quite a saintly picture of the church that Paul is is giving us, isn't it? In fact, did you know that this is Paul's preferred way of writing about God's people, the church? Saints. He uses the word saints more than he uses the word Christian in his writing. This is his preferred way of describing you. 
Now, I don't know about you. I didn't come into worship this morning feeling extraordinary. Maybe you did. Some of you look like maybe you did. (laughs) I feel pretty ordinary. I came in today feeling like I normally feel just a guy. And I certainly didn't come in here feeling like I'm a saint. And I never would call myself a saint. And yet here is Paul saying to us three times in a matter of just a short period of time in this book. He is saying to us in 18 verses, he is calling us saints. He's talking about how we love saints. Saints upon saints, inheriting with saints. Saints, saints, saints. Are you getting it? You're a saint. (laughs) Do you feel like one? Would you ever call yourself one? Why is, why is Paul doing this? What's he up to here? I've been wrestling with this and wondering, why in the world does he use this language? What does it mean for us? Now, I don't pretend to have all the answers, of course, and I'm sure that there are quite a few sermons that could be preached about this. But I want to wrestle with this language with you today. In particular, I want to wrestle with this idea of why Paul calls us saints in light of the verses that we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word this morning. So again, starting 15, I'll read it again. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, know God. So that with the eyes of your heart, enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing to you. Amen. You can be seated. So N.T. Wright, in his devotional guide that the small groups are studying this week, is going to highlight that we should focus on this idea of power. And that makes complete sense, doesn't it? Because if you heard what Paul was saying in just these short verses, he's talking about power upon power. In fact, he mentions the word power four times. And when he's not mentioning the word power, he's also giving imagery of power seated at the right hand, everything being put underfoot, head of all things. These are images of power. And did you notice verse 19? Verse 19 talks about God's power being powerful. It's not enough that God has power. It's powerful power. It's, it, 
Paul is being verbose here. He's, it's almost like he just can't contain himself. He wants you. He wants the ancient us that heard this the first time. He wants all those that have heard it before us. He's wanting the contemporary us, the saints, the church, you, to ponder the power of God. So let's ponder together. If I was to ask you a question, what is the most powerful act in the scriptures? What would come to mind? We could start with the Old Testament, of course. I mean, the very first page, creation. Wow, what a display of power that is. We don't have to get too far into Exodus and we have the 10 plagues. That's a pretty significant act of power. And, and of that, the highlight of that is the parting of the Red Sea. Wow, what power. On the heels of that, we have the walls of Jericho falling down. Without even a stone thrown at it, the walls fall down. That's how powerful God is. Maybe we could think about it a little more creatively, though. What about that young boy that picks up a stone and kills a giant with it? God's power is at work there, isn't it? Or do you remember the story of Elijah and the calling down of the fire of, of, from heaven to consume that offering that was, that was made to Baal and all those priests that couldn't get anything to happen to that offering, and, and the fire comes down and consumes not only that offering, but the offering to Yahweh as well. Oh, that's power. Fire from heaven coming down. What story from the Old Testament? There are so many stories, but what about the New Testament? And we start the New Testament with the virgin birth. That's an act of power. On the heels of that, we have walking on water, feeding 5,000. We have so many different kinds of healings that Jesus does. Power upon power. We have the casting out of demons. What, what story would you pick if you were to say to somebody, this, this is the synthesis. This is the summary. This is, this is the apex of God's power in the scriptures. What would it be? Well, Paul knows all these stories too. He had certainly knew the Old Testament. That's what he was raised on. It's what he had studied as a young man. And he had heard the stories of Jesus, of course. What does he choose? Well, verse 20 tells us. He wants to sum up God's power. He was, he's asking us to think about the power of God. He's, and he wants to sum it all up. He wants to say, if there's one act that, that pulls all of this together for you so that you can understand the power of God, the apex moment it's this, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the most powerful act of God that we have in Scripture. Where death, literal death, we said it in the Apostles' Creed today, he died and was buried. That was overcome by eternal life. Now you might be thinking, wait, there are other stories of people coming back to life in Scripture. What about those? And there's a different differentiation that we need to make here. All those stories that we hear of, of a person that had died or is believed to be dead in some cases, that comes back to life, those are stories of resuscitation. Lazarus is the most famous one of those, right? Dead, 
truly dead, and he is resuscitated and given life. Here's what you need to understand about poor Lazarus' story, though. He was going to die again. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? He wasn't given eternal life yet. So Lazarus, raised from the dead, resuscitated, given life, an amazing act of power. There is no denying it. Praise be to God. But at some point in his future life, he died. Jesus, on the other hand, the first story of resurrection, true resurrection, not resuscitation, resurrection. How do we know that? Because if you read the Gospels, when he's raised from the dead, he is not himself always, is he? Sometimes he looks like Jesus and he's familiar to his disciples, and other times they look at him and they don't know him. Mary doesn't see him in the garden. She calls him a gardener. He's walking on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke, and the disciples don't recognize him. Stranger walking amongst them. Sometimes he appears in a different form. Other times he makes himself known and they say, Jesus. Sometimes he's there. Sometimes he's not. He can disappear. It's a resurrected body. A resurrected body is different than a resuscitated body. Are you following me? The power of God is the power of resurrection. In a world that is so consumed with the ideas and tools of power, we, the church, might want to consider this. God's power is on display most in resurrection power. But lest you and I think that this was just some ancient thing that happened that has little bearing for us today, oh, it it has bearing on our future, but does it really have that much bearing on us right now in this moment? I want you to see what Paul says in chapter 2, the start of chapter 2. I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to notice what, how he talks about us in the first verse. He says that we have been dead in our sins, that we are dead in our trespasses, that we are disobedient, that we were children of wrath. Now, he's describing us, the same people that he said were saints, the same people that, that said saints, loving saints, saints, inherited saints. Guess what? The story of all the saints is, is that we first were children of disobedience. We first were people of wrath, children of wrath. First, we were dead in our trespasses. That's who we once were. But because of resurrection, because of the power of resurrection in Christ and through Christ, we have a different story. He says in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead through our trespasses. Did you hear that? While you were dead in your trespasses, while you were dead in your sins, it's at that moment that God intervened and gave resurrection to you. That is the story of every saint, every Christian. Once we were dead, disobedient, living for ourselves, God intercedes in our lives, extends grace to our lives, and now who are we? Well, he calls us saints, resurrected, given new life, 
new identity. In fact, he wants to be very clear about this. Underline this in your Bible if it's not already underlined. Dead through our trespasses, made alive together with Christ, verse 4. By grace you are saved. You are saved because of Christ. The resurrecting power of God at work in Christ and through Christ. So friends, if you're following me at all, then what you need to hear me say, what you hear Paul saying to us, your salvation is not dependent on you earning it. It's not the outcome of good works. It is a gift. It is resurrection power being extended to you by grace. The unmerited favor of God. That while you were dead, He chose you. He called you. He extended grace to you. Where there is death, God wants to bring resurrection. Indeed, is bringing resurrection. We believe that, right? It's happening, isn't it? Amen. Where there is sin, God wants to bring resurrection life. Indeed, is bringing resurrection life. Today, we saw it in the baptism of Doug. We saw the idea of this coming to fruition among us. New life is happening. God is working here. But guess what? God is working outside the walls of this place, isn't he? He's working in the other churches in this community. He's working in places we wouldn't expect him to be working because God is about resurrection, bringing new life. Oh, that's good news for us, isn't it? And what seems so surprising to me then is that Paul has the utmost confidence and I, I seriously, the utmost confidence that wherever there is a people gathered together in the name of Jesus Christ, then there are saints among us. Do you hear that? Wherever there are people gathered in the name of Jesus Christ, there are saints. Not pretend saints. We don't need any more of those. Real life, holy people. Hmm. I think to fully appreciate this, we need to see that for Paul, this language, this idea of being a saint, a holy person, is not static. What do I mean by that? Have you ever heard, nobody in first service apparently heard this because nobody, <laughs> nobody seemed to know what I was talking about. Have you guys ever heard the, the saying, safe, sanctified, and petrified? Has anybody heard that? <laughs> okay, it must be, uh, <laughs> Dick has heard it, okay. <laughs> that, maybe that was something we said a lot in the West, I don't know. Didn't make it out to the East. Saved, yeah, that's good, we want that. Sanctified, absolutely, we need that. Petrified, no. What do we mean when we say that? Well, it's always used as sort of like this tongue-in-cheek way of talking about somebody that stopped growing in their faith. A saint doesn't stop growing in their faith. They never arrive at a finished spot. They never become static. They never stop. Because a saint is somebody who is connected 
to God in a living relationship. Living relationships are always dynamic. You understand that. Human relationships function this way. I know sometimes we get a little bit confused about what does it mean to be in relationship with God, but the, the way for us to understand it is really human relationships to one another. And any human relationship, if it is going to be a living, thriving relationship, there have to be things done for it. We have to be living in it. We have to be nurturing uh, grace. We have to be nurturing uh, uh, Forgiveness, there we go. It was having a hard time coming out. (laughs) We have to be nurturing love and mercy and kindness. We need to be nurturing these things in order for this relationship to be living. And if you don't nurture and foster the time and energy that it takes to actually do that in the relationship that you're in, whether it's with kids or with brothers and sisters, spouses, friends, coworkers, if we stop nurturing that time, What happens to that relationship? Does it stay the same? No relationship is static. It's either growing in grace and love and mercy, closeness, or it is beginning to fall apart, isn't it? It's beginning to die. And of course, that process of death can take a long time, but at some point, that relationship can be so dead that it no longer is a relationship anymore. Because instead of love, somewhere along the way we, we got jealous, resentful, angry, hostile. We started keeping track of all the things that people have done wrong to us, that person has done wrong to us. And so, if we're not growing in a relationship, then we're dying in a relationship. And the same thing is happening with God. Paul, I think, if we want to understand what he's trying to get at here, if we're uniting these two things, the power of God and this idea that he calls us saints, then what we need to recognize is is that he really does believe that God has the power to make you a saint. In fact, he's so confident of this that he already declares it for us. He calls you saint. Nowhere in here are you going to find except for those who do this and that. That's not here. He declares it for you because he has the utmost confidence that God is capable to overcome the sin in your life and in my life. And so he declares it over us. You are saints. That's our identity in God. Wow. However, since this is a living relationship, and we see Paul buries this in in verse 17, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know about God, things of God, the idea of God. No. He actually writes that you would know God. Know him personally. So friends, what Paul is saying to us is that already 
God has identified us. Already God has chosen us to be holy and blameless, to be saints. Already he has done the hard work for us. Resurrection power has already been granted to us. It's already available to us. The real question is, what are we going to do with it? Because any living relationship has to have two partners. God has done his part. Are we going to do our part? And what is our part? Well, it's to respond. Do you understand that God's grace is response-enabling grace? In other words, God's not going to make the decision for you. In order for you to become the saints that he's already identified you to be, he needs you to participate in this relationship. He needs you to cooperate. He needs you to engage in it. And how do we engage in a relationship with God? Well, we participate in all of the things that God is asking us to do. We worship, we pray, we read our scriptures, we serve. We do the things that Jesus Christ has called us to do. We call this discipleship. We call this the path of obedience. In order for us to be in relationship with God, in order for us to become the saints that Paul actually is calling us, we have to do our part. Live the life. Follow Christ. The good news for you is all the work is really get done for us. The grace is provided. We're going to come to the, mo- the table in just a moment. Again, a symbol that not only does our sin not have to separate us from God, resurrection power has already happened, new life can come, But oh, by the way, that grace is going to come inside of you, a symbol for us, a sign for us that we go from this place, not on our own energy, not having to make it up as we go, but guess who goes with us? The Holy Spirit, the comforter, the guide to help us be the saints God calls us to be. And I believe the world desperately needs the church to be right now. Don't you think we need a few more saints in the world? I wonder. Calvary community, are we a place where sinners become saints? That's a pretty good story, isn't it? I want to be a part of that kind of church. And it starts with us saying yes. So in just a moment, my helpers are going to come down and And we're going to serve communion. In the Church of the Nazarene, we have what's called an open table, which means you don't have to be a member of this congregation to participate in communion. We believe the table is Christ's table, and the invitation is Christ that he is making to each of us. You are free to participate. But there is one requirement that Scripture does declare for us if we are to participate in communion. And that is that we recognize that we are people in need of grace. That's what it means to eat it in a worthy manner. To recognize on my own, I'm not deserving. Left to my own devices, I live at odds with God. But if I'm willing to receive grace, then guess who's willing to extend it? he's already identified you he wants you to be saint he's chosen you 
to be holy, blameless. Do you hear your identity in Christ? So if you want that to be your identity, then friend, all you have to do is come and receive the grace that's extended to you. There are two ways to think about this grace. For some of us in this space, maybe we have never actually received that kind of grace for the first time. We've never actually committed our lives saying, you know what, Jesus? I'm done doing this on my own. I need you to be my Lord and Savior. So this moment right now can be a way for you to say yes to salvation. I received the gift of salvation this morning. Oh, that's a good story. The rest of us in here, some of us in here have already done that. Maybe many of us in here have already done that. We've received the gift of salvation. So what are we coming to the table for? The gift of sanctification. Because we don't want any petrified Christians, do we? And in order for you not to become petrified, stuck, you need to receive grace. Grace upon grace, sanctifying grace, so that you and I can become a reflection of Jesus Christ in this world. So whether you come to receive the gift of salvation or whether you come to receive the gift of sanctification, an invitation is extended to every single one of us. Come as you are and receive resurrection power that Jesus Christ is offering to us. God, we don't deserve the goodness that you offer us. In the start of Ephesians, it's just goodness upon goodness. Oh, it's, it's almost too much to take, really. An amazing litany of, of good things that you're calling us, calling us to, equipping us for. And we don't deserve it. We, we acknowledge that. We don't deserve this. Those aren't words of, of self-pity. Those aren't words to discourage us. That's just the reality. It's the truth. So that we can receive from you what we need. You meet us where we are. So if there's somebody among us that needs grace for salvation, God, would you extend that? Would you extend the gift of sanctification to us so that we can become more like our Lord and Savior, so that we can, in fact, become more like what we eat? Symbols of the broken body and spilt blood of Jesus Christ. Symbols of resurrection power. Oh God, would you help us to be people that tap into that resurrection power.